0: Hello and welcome to God's Word During Exile. This is the podcast where right now we are doing a Bible study through the book of Revelation. And I figured since I introduced us monotone two weeks ago, and then last week it was a very short intro, I figured that you guys missed a good mic intro. So today I got a good joke that I'm going to share with the group. And you can comment down below. And I'm going to let it just hover. And then I'm going to give you the punchline of the joke at the end of the study. All right. And it's very biblical. Uh, it does break one of the Ten Commandments. But remember, this is a joke. Ben's like, not even listening. He's just like, Mike, just get to the point, Mike. Let's go. <laughs> So here's a joke. How do you steal a coat? Now I know all of you who are listening are like, Mike, you shouldn't steal a coat because it's against the sixth commandment. Fifth commandment. Fifth commandment.
1: <laughs> yes. Oh, sixth yeah. sixth, is sixth commandment is, yeah. Fifth is kill. Sixth
0: mm-hmm. is steal.
2: Unless you're going for the reformed numbering, then I guess you could say the sixth commandment. So.
0: For the joke purposes, how do you steal a coat? All right? Stay tuned. But today we want to welcome you in. We're happy that you're here. Uh, We're going to be going through the second half of uh, Revelation chapter 5. We're looking forward to it next week. We got a special guest on. I mean, he's very special. Uh, We're lucky that we get to have him on. It's not a new person, but... We're happy that he's coming on. It's Jason. And everyone's like, all right, Mike, that's enough. So <laughs> uh, so I'm just going to pass it off to Mike Hussey. And I'm going to say, uh, Mike, why don't you save us with a word of prayer? Uh, you're not even going to introduce us, though?
1: Oh, yeah.
0: Well, I don't know. You did a weird thing before where, like, <laughs> you left the chat and then you came back in. So, like, you were over here for me. But now you're here for me, which is weird. It's throwing me off. So I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to just throw total left field. I'm going to go, Mike Hussey is up in this corner up here. And then I'm going to say that uh, the dubs is, is right up above me. All right. The, the righteous Reverend Matt, Matt Nelson. And then I'm going to say that Ben is right across from me. So like Ben, we should just high five Ben.
3: So
0: like, you go go this way, Ben. Yeah. yeah.
3: Oh man. Oh man.
1: That's going to look really silly when you see the recording, (laughs) but on that note, let's go to the Lord in prayer. (laughs) Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you for today. Lord, thank you for another opportunity to dig into your word. Uh, Lord, your word is truth. We pray that you would sanctify us by that truth. As we now look into Revelation chapter five and try to finish this chapter, I pray that you would use your word to show us our sin, need for a savior, Lord, bring us to repentance. Allow us to confess our sins freely before you, and Lord, also bring us to Christ. Strengthen our faith in him, and equip us for your service. By your word, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Ben, will you read Revelation 5 for us?
2: You want me to start at verse 6?
1: Yeah, I think so. We covered it pretty well up to there. Remember, verse 5 is the one where uh, the elder says, hey, John, quit crying. Put on your
0: big boy uh, yes. pants. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Rub some dirt in it, John. Let's go. All
2: right. So Revelation chapter five, starting at verse six, a reading from the English standard version says this and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Here ends the reading.
1: Right. So we, we finally get to see the, uh, sort of the culmination of, of what we were hoping for in the first five verses. Remember, uh, nobody was able to, to uh, take that scroll and open up the seals. And John starts to weep. And then, uh, then the elder tells John there is one that can open the scrolls. And we get to see it starting here in verse six. So let's take uh, verses six through eight kind of as a unit. Um, got kind of an interesting picture of Jesus to start there with, right? You, you've got the lamb um as though it's been slain uh which is pretty significant i'm sure we'll talk about that but as i read through it i hit seven horns and seven eyes and that made me just take a step back and just go like i can't even i can't even picture that can you guys even picture what a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes would actually you look I'll bet like
0: if, i'll bet if you google it you could probably find it i probably could so if you really want to see it, my real question is, all right. So now here's my question. So seven eyes. All right. So that means is there like one in the middle and then like three on the outside, or is there like four on one side and three on the other? Like just saying, good thing that seven is the perfect number. Otherwise I'm just trying to figure out like, does he have an uneven amount of eyes on one side or the other?
2: Am I the only one who
0: thought like that when you studied this text?
3: So this well, would be you. a
2: good example of how not to. <laughs> 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 take these oh, images.
0: Setting
1: <laughs> right.
2: <laughs> Set, set towel straight here, Ben.
1: <laughs> what yeah. are we talking about?
2: <laughs> <laughs> all right, so we talked about this a bit when uh, we were kind of introducing all of all of this. So we remember that we're dealing with you know, prophetic literature, apocalyptic literature. And so the images are not meant to be taken in a literalistic fashion that, that this is how they would look if you were to see them with your eyes. So that's where we get a bunch of the crazy images that Mike was talking about. You can find on the internet and whatnot. So we don't want to go that direction and imagine a lamb that has literally seven eyes um, and seven horns. Um, But rather we remember the significance of that number seven. And the horn was a symbol of authority and power. And so the fact that this lamb is described as having seven horns, you know, it would be divine power, divine authority. Um, and the, the seven eyes again, just, you know, John says are the seven spirits of God. So we think of the Holy spirit. Um, and so this lamb uh, possesses divine authority And so that brings to mind also that what we've been talking about with uh, chapters 4 and 5 here is really the the coronation of Christ. And so this brings us back to, this is the point of his ascension, right? And so, you know, in Daniel 7, we have the image of one like a son of man ascending to the ancient of days, to God himself, and he receives from God an eternal kingdom, right? And the and the worship of and obedience of the nations. And so this is um, Christ fulfilling that, that image, that prophecy, their vision of Daniel, as Jesus often uh, really like to refer to himself as the son of man, drawing from Daniel seven there. And so this is the point of, of his ascension is that he ascends to the father uh, to receive the kingdom, right? And so this helps us understand then that Jesus is currently reigning um, he has been enthroned um, you know some 2,000 years ago um, and continues to reign today. Um, we talked a little bit in the in previous episodes about how you know we don't as the book of Hebrews tells us we don't yet see everything subjected to Christ. Um, so we're waiting for that the fullness of that to happen but he is indeed enthroned overall and so we're not we're not looking for some future uh, coronation of Christ as if that's still yet to come. That has already happened. He is presently reigning um, and he has that divine authority symbolized by the seven horns. He has the Holy spirit of God symbolized by the seven spirits, which are equated with those eyes. Um, I don't know if there's anything else you guys wanted to say about that in particular. Um
0: I would. Uh, I'd like to encourage our people uh, not to Google.
2: <laughs> um, Probably good. Uh, I was.
0: Is that what I you've did, been doing? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no. I mean, I was listening very intently to Ben. There's, <laughs> there's a. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff on here. Whoa. So, I would say, like, yeah. Don't don't worry about doing it. I mean, like maybe, <laughs> this is maybe the best one that I would share, otherwise, like, and I'm literally gonna black out all the other ones, but like, this is the best one, okay? You ready for this? Here you go. All right? there it is. that's that that's the most appropriate right. one that i that I could share. All right, we're done. We're moving on. There it is. <laughs> um, all the other ones a little, yeah, so. Yeah. That was, that was
1: kind of cool drawing, though, because there was like, you had some Holy Communion imagery mm-hmm. going on in there, too. That was pretty sweet.
3: Yep. Blood so, of Christ in the cup. Thinking about the, some of these things, uh, we've talked about how the horns, again, are, are symbolic throughout Scripture of that power and authority that Ben's mentioning. And there's, there's a lot of places we could go with that, but that might be kind of obvious um, based on what we've talked about before. The seven eyes thing um that shows up a couple times in the book of zechariah in chapter 3 verse 9 there's mentioning of uh, this um this single stone that's set before joshua and it has seven eyes and um but the the lord's talking about that with this he will remove the iniquity of the land and so uh, maybe a a connection with removing of iniquity here which would line up well with the lamb um also, we um, can think of. Uh, well, I guess also in Zechariah there, the, the seven eyes are the eyes of the Lord. It says in four verse ten that range through the whole earth, and that seems like a powerful picture too of the divinity of Christ. His the all-seeing eyes, the seven eyes, see perfectly, completely everything. We think of how God is able to examine even the thoughts and intentions of people's hearts. And he knows everything. He's omniscient, all knowing, and all seeing. And so um, the, those are the eyes that that the exalted lamb has. And uh, by the way, too, just the idea with the lamb, just so that we aren't um, moving past that too quickly. If, if this is new to you, why we would call Jesus the lamb um, in John chapter one, I believe it is. Um, yeah, verse twenty nine and thirty six. We have John talking about this. Twenty nine says um, Jesus. He John sees Jesus walking towards him, and he says, "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." And this is referring back to the Old Testament and, um, and particularly probably the the Passover, where the people in Israel were. Um, seeking protection under the blood of the lamb in the houses. God had directed that they put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts to protect them from the angel of death that was going to come and take all the firstborn of the land of Egypt uh, as he was in this battle with the pharaoh and and the gods of pharaoh. But the people found protection under the blood of the lamb. uh, And so the lamb's blood was shed for their salvation. And so Jesus is called the lamb of God because his, his, him shedding his blood for us provided protection from death and the consequences of sin. In First 1 Peter 1.19, we see, uh, it says, with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Um, it's talking about that we were ransomed with that blood of the lamb. And so, uh, scripture clearly uses that imagery of Jesus. So this is no doubt talking about Jesus himself and referring then to his salvation of, of all, all mankind really providing for that.
2: Yeah. And uh, along with, with that, um, we see, like we see in this one image of the lamb, you know, as Matt, you're highlighting the the connection to the passover there which is quite appropriate um but we can also uh see in that the whole <clears throat> the whole background of the sacrificial system uh in its entirety particularly then you know culminates in the day of atonement yep. um in which uh sacrifices are offered for the for the priests and for the entire assembly of the people um and jesus is uh also fulfilling that he is the not only the you know the scapegoat who receives by imputation the sins of the people and takes them away to God's judgment and away from the people but he is also the sacrifice that is killed on the altar whose blood is spilled uh, who forgives which forgives the sins of the people um, and we have that imagery too of Isaiah 53 that Christ was led as a sheep to the slaughter, speaking about the servant of the Lord, which um, Jesus is that servant of the Lord. He is um, the Messiah, the suffering servant that Isaiah speaks of. <clears throat> and so we can see, you know, in this, it's, it's multifaceted, like this entire background, you know, along with all the, the Passover stuff that Matt highlighted, all of this together um, is lying behind. Uh, this designation of Christ as the lamb of God uh, who takes away the sins of the world. And um, along with that, if we remember, just what we looked at last week, you know, Jesus was just described as, you know, the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? You know, so the John was weeping, no one could open the scroll, weep no more or in my parlance, Oh, you want me to say it? There's all, there's all kinds of stuff. You just,
1: you just kind of be a jerk about it. Quit crying, um, John.
2: <clears throat> Rub some dirt in it. Cowboy up. And so the, the reason for that is that one has been found worthy is the, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so John looks, right? And we might expect that, oh, he's going to see this lion, right? Majestic creature and so on. But he looks for the lion of the tribe of Judah and he sees a lamb Hmm. as though it had been slain, right? So we have packed in here too, not only the death of Christ, that the lamb was slain, but that this lamb lives again. This lamb is currently living. So it had been slain and raised from the dead. And so um, this is a pretty packed picture. Um, of christ and his redemptive work that he is the lamb uh alive though he had been slain right so death and resurrection who has ascended to heaven and received divine authority right and he rules and reigns uh presently um he has the holy spirit his vision goes out to all the earth there's nothing that is hidden from his sight it is this one uh who by his death and resurrection conquered and is the one who is worthy to take the scroll
3: this is so reminiscent i think of jesus appearing after the resurrection in his resurrected body but he still had the the marks of the crucifixion on his Mm -hmm. body the holes in his hand and his side so he's standing alive but he looks like he had been killed and and that's uh, the picture here too this lamb is standing but it was as though it had been slain and such a a beautiful picture of the resurrection.
1: Let's keep rolling there in verses six through eight. Um, You guys did an awesome job um, describing the lamb and uh, the horns and the eyes. And Mike, your picture was beautiful. I love that connection with uh, communion actually, because as I was thinking about it and Matt was talking about, the Passover, uh, you know, we're in the season of Lent right now, so we're, we're leading up to Holy Week and the resurrection of Christ, but as we travel this, this Lenten journey toward the cross and resurrection, one of the uh, most significant days we're going to hit on is going to be that Holy Thursday, Monday Thursday, Um, where Jesus and the disciples were celebrating the Passover. And that's where we get the institution of the Lord's supper of him giving his body and blood for us, you know, given and shed for the forgiveness of all of our sins. Um, So it is this lamb yet that lamb, exactly the one that we've got up on the screen (laughs) that looks specifically like that. When you go to heaven, that's what you will see. You see Jesus. I'm pretty but, sure that's no, really, you should... do
3: want to go there. You do. <laughs> 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 it, is, it is the
1: crucified and risen and glorified Christ, right? Who is finally worthy to take this scroll. So John can quit his crying. And so he takes the, the scroll and, uh, and, and heaven erupts, man. Right. We got verse eight, the four living creatures. We already talked about them last week, kind of uh kind of representing the, the greatest creatures. Um, what did we have? It was a, a lion. Let me see if I can remember them. A lion, a man, an eagle, and uh ox and an, an ox. ox. So you yeah. had the greatest, you know domestic creature and the greatest wild animal, and you had man and you got the greatest creature of the air, kind of representing all of creation, bowing down and, and worshiping the lamb. You got the 24 elders talked about this a ways back, right? we got the Old and New Testament church represented there and those elders also bowing down before the lamb. Um, And each one of them, oh, wait, before we get into that, Matt, you had something really interesting that you ran into with Mm -hmm. those four creatures this last week.
3: Yeah, so I was uh, preaching in the book of Numbers this last week at my church and uh, in in my Lutheran study Bible on Numbers 2 verse 2, I, I ran across this note that mentions that So so what's happening in this passage is that um, God's setting up the arrangement of his people around the tabernacle into different camps. And so so there's these arrangements, um, sort of military style uh, around it. And each of the camps, then they are to set up their standard, like a banner waving like a flag for each of their tribes as they gather around. And so on the four sides of the tabernacle, there are three groups on each side, but there's one prominent group on each side. And, um, and so there is a heavy emphasis on those, but the rabbinical tradition is that the four banners for those tribes are, are these same symbols of the cherubim. So um, it says here that, um that the lion was the standard of judah a man was the standard of reuben an ox was the standard of ephraim and an eagle was the standard of dan um and so it seemed really like a a a strange coincidence to come across that as we're talking about this in this study but uh I was imagining this picture then as they're all gathered around the tabernacle, which is where God's presence was. This is very much like these four creatures gathered around the throne of God and with God's people, the elders. So many connections here that I think we're supposed to to make. And um, and so we've got, again, God's people and, and all of this worship set up. All of them The camps also were to face inward, all looking in towards where God's presence was. And so maybe even then we could say that the tabernacle and the gathering of God's people in Israel was a picture of heaven. And uh, we can probably find connections like that, too, with with the church and how we worship gathered around um, the place where we recognize the presence of the Lord and the word of God.
2: Uh, before we move on um if we go back to verse six for just a second uh in describing the lamb you know looking at the the esv i don't know how it's rendered in other english translations but it has that language of the lamb standing as though it had been slain and that can be somewhat misleading and make it sound like it like the lamb only appeared to have been slain, but wasn't actually slain. Um, And so that though in there is really not so helpful. Um, And so it's really better to just to simply understand as a lamb standing as having been slain. Um, It's a, the word in the Greek there is in the perfect. And so that's the idea happened in the past continues on to the present to so the lamb was slain in the past and continues that way and yet is resurrected so you have that kind of interesting you know both things connected there but so we don't want to we just want to make sure we don't hear that though as like oh, the lamb only appeared to be slain. Um, no, the lamb truly was slain and risen again. So we just we don't want to get thrown off by that
3: English word though there. Kind of because that would be an error that some people have fallen into.
1: and and kind of to help prove your point there ben if we roll down into verse nine which we're going to do in just a minute um you know the the living creatures the elders they're singing this song and and it's about jesus being worthy and they sing for you were slain like you didn't it's Mm -hmm. not that you appeared slain it 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 really happened jesus laid down his life for us all right All right. So every one of those 24 elders, as they're laying down or, or uh, falling down before the lamb, um, each one of them is, is holding a harp. Um, and I thought Mike Natal was going to find some really awesome stuff on Google about why they were holding a harp. Um, but I think the best we kind of found about, you know, the elders holding a harp is they were just, you know, ready to sing praise to God and the
0: lamb who is worthy. Is that a fair way to say that, guys? And I think that that should also be a lesson to our listeners too. If you are trying to Google information about the book of Revelation, (laughs) 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 there's there's a really good chance that you're not going to come up with an actual good representation of what is being meant here. And so that's why when you hear everyone uh, referencing other commentaries, it is because those people have been facts checked and theologically they are sound in not just their viewpoint on revelation, but across the board, you know, as we, as we kind of rolled out for you guys, we spent a decent portion of time just laying down foundation before we even touch this book. And so in the same way that we're using different commentaries to bring you guys um, positive ways to interpret it, these people who we are using are authors that we have trusted in the past or have a really good track record with how they interpret other scriptural things. It's not Google. And I would hesitate and encourage you to not just Google to try to find answers to the book of Revelation.
3: Yep. Only use it to find pictures of the lamb. (laughs) Right. Do what I say, not what I do, right? <laughs> uh, um, but, you know, I think, you know, not to get off on this for too long, but when we think about the harp, we can think about all of the different musical things in the scriptures that that God wants all these various kind of noise makers and instruments to sing his praises. I also think of how even when it's kind of not in a formal worship setting, that music is actually a gift of God, a beautiful creation of God. Think of how David played the harp, and it soothed, soothed soul's spirit. And, um, and, and music is a beautiful thing that God has made to bless the earth, and we can be thankful for it, even when people are unwittingly, as an unbeliever, playing beautiful music. It just gives uh, credit to God for his beautiful creation, and it can actually be a blessing to us even in that. But its its highest um, uh, value, its main purpose is really to praise God. And, and so uh, the most beautiful music that ever is played on earth should be directed towards God. And so you Christian musicians out there, keep working hard and, and produce beautiful music for the church because... That's something God has gifted you with and he is using to bless the earth and to sing his praises. And uh, it's kind of exciting as somebody who loves music to think of all of the awesome music in heaven and, and to see it in its best form, uh, praising the Lord who created music.
1: All right, let's look at the last little description of these elders, then. It says they have golden bowls full of incense, and the text tells us that these are the prayers of the saints. Now, incense has had a, a long history in the worship of the gathered church, hasn't it? Mm-hmm. Is it anything that you guys ever do in your churches?
3: We just did that, you know, around Epiphany, Um at our church. And and we were, but we were talking about it. It's something that I don't think has been used here. We refer to it a lot when we're, we're hearing about the wise men bringing their gifts, you know, around Christmas time, when we're thinking of that. And, and we read, we read about it a lot, but we, I don't think we normally practice it. But in doing that, I, I did talk to a number of people that have either visited churches that use it or, the church that they grew up at used it. And so it's still being used out there for sure. And some groups very consistently or regularly use it. Uh, but I, I know that uh, we also covered it in uh, looking back through, especially like Leviticus and uh, and seeing how it was used in the tabernacle and would be later used in the temple. Um, and so we got a picture here then of of the incense that was burned um, regularly um, in the tabernacle as part of the worship of the the people of God and um, but then also on the day of atonement they would take some finely ground incense and bring it into the holy of holies the high priests would bring it in there and um, and it had a few different purposes it seems one, it would kind of cloud God's presence so that they wouldn't die, you know, when they went in there. And um, it was sort of a veil, but also it uh, was representative even then for their prayers and their worship that was going up to the Lord. And then the, it provided kind of a visual. And actually, how would you say it when, when, when you experience with your nose a, a s- smell experience of? Uh, it's called of, smell-o-vision smell a vision is that what it is no and (laughs) sorry you know should ask some smart people to come on this (laughs) uh podcast some more well we got somebody coming next week that can come up with better descriptions (laughs) uh but the so it was an experience though something that they could um kind of they could see and but also smell that represented their worship going up to the Lord. Um, and and that then it would be, re- their hope was that this would be received to, um, by the Lord as a pleasing aroma. Maybe you've seen that in the scriptures, that these smells um, would go up to him and please him. And that's the hope when we pray to the Lord that He would receive them, as well as when we sing and worship to the Lord, that he would receive them and be satisfied and and enjoy that. And so uh, this is really encouraging, then, that that God is affirming that, and he's saying that the prayers of the saints are like these golden bowls of incense that please him.
2: And kind of... At least one verse kind of standing behind that imagery too is from Psalm 141 verse two, uh, which says, let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. And so we have, you know, there in the, uh, in the Psalms, which was the the prayer book, the song book of old covenant Israel, um, an equation of, you know, identifying prayers and incense, um, and so also we have an example, too, of the connection between heaven and earth and the worship of the Lamb. So the prayers of the saints, we see them as bowls full of incense, which, you know, we are told in other places rise continually uh, before God and are there at the altar in heaven as well.
1: Oh, do you guys have any other thoughts on the, our first little section there, verses six through eight, or should we move on to the new song
3: i think we could jump in
1: all right so let's take a look then at verses 9 and 10 we have a new song being sung worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals and we we hit on this i think it was last week just briefly jesus is worthy the lamb is worthy because it was slain right it seems like absolute foolishness to the human eye right because you went to the cross because you died now you're worthy Hmm. and by your blood you ransomed people for god from every tribe and language and people and nation you have made them a kingdom of priests to our god and they shall reign on the earth all right so we've got jesus worthy because of what he did because of going to the cross Um, and looks like he redeemed just a couple people there in verse nine right
3: Just a couple, huh? Just
1: Well, yeah. <laughs> Nobody wants to counteract that. We're going with just a couple.
0: And I think we have enough uh, support of, and um, <clears throat> I can't think of the word that I'm thinking of right now.
1: Smell-o-vision.
0: No, of our, <laughs> of our listeners. To so know that they probably heard that and they're like, no that's just mike being mike
3: yeah is is this the heresy part of this episode is we need we need one each week so probably yeah
0: <laughs> don't forget how do you steal a coat we'll get to it
2: okay. uh, so we'll we'll come back to your comment mike <laughs> in a minute but uh the language i think it's good for us to know the language of a new song um so Seems in the, in the old Testament, the singing of a new song is uh, often or always an expression of praise for God's victory over the enemy. Um, And so we have a new song here and it celebrates the lamb's victory over, you know, the enemies of sin, death, and the devil. Um, And it has that descriptor again of, of being something new. And this brings to mind, you know, the association of Christ's redemptive work with new creation, um, which we, we saw back in chapter four and it comes through in chapter five uh, here as well. Um, And, and also in many of the Jewish writings, the old Testament new song is associated with the coming of the Messiah and the messianic age. And so it seems uh, to be the case here, that that this describing this song as a new song is kind of basically saying the you know Messiah has come, the Messianic age is here. We are uh, praising God for His victory over His enemies, and that through the redemptive work of Christ, which takes uh, fallen creation, including fallen humanity, and makes them new creatures, and so all of this is kind of bound up in Christ's redemptive work, uh, which is spoken of here again, through his, his death, Uh, you know, for you are slain by your blood, you ransomed people uh, for God. So we have that one of the metaphors used uh, for the gospel in scripture is that of ransom, you know, paying the, paying the price, you know, and the price was the blood of, of Christ. Right. And he pays that price to, um, to gain his people, right? And then we come back to, um, Mike, what you were talking about there, that 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 people extends to every, you know, people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And so this really goes back to um, kind of what we were talking about um, when we were introducing all of this before we even got to Revelation, that the people of God is, is not limited to a particular nation, uh, for example, the Jewish people, right, and and part of why we know this is because of that language, oh, I'm jumping ahead a little bit to, in verse 10 there, the language of, you know, a kingdom and priests, and this is how, you know, in Exodus, the, the Israelites were described by God, that they would be a kingdom of priests, right? A people for God's own possession. And St. Peter will pick that up in his epistle as well and say, hey, guess what? This is what the church is, the kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And here we have that same language again, that the people of God ransomed by the blood of Christ are a kingdom and priests to our God. And so the people of God then that that scripture continues to pound away as they are the people of faith. It's not bound by a particular ethnicity. And that is so very clear uh, from verse nine here that God has, you know, ransomed people for himself by the blood of his son from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And so if we understand that, you know, and God doesn't lie, this is his word. We cannot by any means limit God's people to a particular nation nor can we somehow just you know decide that we're going to have two peoples of god right scripture doesn't speak this way um god doesn't have two peoples he has a single people and they are from every tribe language people and nation and so god's salvation is throughout um is for all humanity throughout the entire earth not limited to this group or that group and so um when we start to go down that path of saying, Oh, this particular people group, most often it is uh, the Jewish people that are singled out in this way. Um, Oh, they're the people of God. Well, that flies directly in the face of what is being sung and confessed here in heaven before the throne um, that, that Jesus is the savior of all people. And he always has been. always will be there is only one way there is only one people of God and so we cannot split that up we cannot limit it to just one particular people group to do that um is really to say I don't care what the scriptures say I'm gonna go with my own ideas here and um you know yeah we don't we don't want to go that that way um I want to let the the words of scripture speak for themselves this is redemption for all humanity no matter what particular ethnic group you have for we are all human beings and jesus came for the redemption of all humanity and so no one is excluded uh, from that on the basis of ethnicity or geography or what have you so um, we don't have any place to make this more exclusive than god has made it um And this is, again, in a question and an issue that is wrestled with in the New Testament, um, you know, that St. Paul and the other apostles wrestle with and deal with. And their answer to all of it is always the same, that, you know, it is by faith in Christ that one becomes part of the people of God. And that has always been true. And it always will be true. And so, yeah, that's where we want to be. If that is a,
1: yeah, no, you're, you're spot on. Nice. If, if that was a new uh, concept to you, um, check out episode three of our revelation studies entitled who is Israel. And you get to hear Ben being even more uh, wicked smart. Uh, Mike, would you say that? Like it's properly supposed to be said. Someone from the East coast.
0: Oh yeah. So it's supposed to be wicked smart. There you go.
1: I would have just made a fool out of myself. Thank you. (laughs) I do that enough. (laughs) All right, Ben, I, you, you kind of killed this whole song. I I don't think I have any more comments on the song. Like you, you did a great job. Has anybody else got anything? I'm so proud of Ben. I'm always proud of Ben.
2: Uh, Just that last statement, they show rain on the earth. So this, you know, again, we're not looking for something in the future, you know, as, is proposed by, you know, those who advocate for a future, a future to us, uh, earthly millennial kingdom, um, that's only temporary, you know, um, that's not what we're looking for. Uh, the, the church, the saints of God currently reign with Christ and, and it's not a reigning that, that makes sense to our human reason in that, when we think of reigning and ruling you know we think of oh we have all the power and we dictate to other people what they can and cannot do and no one you know opposes us or not successfully and we look around and we say oh gee well the church doesn't look like that it looks like for all the world that we're beaten up killed defeated you know but again this is the same this is the same thing how did how did christ conquer he conquered death through death he conquered through what appeared to be defeat right and so the church in the image and you know mimicking Christ in the image of Christ we too suffer the same kind of reproach that Christ suffered we too look for all the world to be defeated you know so often we have these ideas like oh we just you know I don't know we seem to always be infatuated with you know the ideas of the I don't know, prosperity of the church and, and bringing about this, you know, great age of, you know, Christianity, or we try to, you know, look back with rose colored glasses and say, Oh, that was the golden age of the church when everything was grand. And it's all a lie. It's not true. There's no golden age. There are problems in every, in every age. And the church has always been, um, you know, even, you know, even when it seems to be, you know, at the height of, you know, in an earthly sense, the height of power and such, it's shot through with problems, right? And we're not trying to build this earthly kingdom. Some Sometimes we speak this way and say, oh, I want to go build the kingdom of God. Well, we're not able to do that. God brings his own kingdom. It's not for us to build. We pray that his kingdom would come. And we confess, you know, in the small catechism, for example, that That when we pray that God's kingdom will come, God's kingdom comes without our prayer. It comes apart from us. God is the one who brings his own kingdom. It came in Jesus Christ. He is indeed the reign and rule of God, his redemptive work. But we pray that it would come among us also. So we are not out like, oh, we're going to build the kingdom. But we proclaim that word of God, that you know, the kingdom comes in that word in that preached word. And, and people are brought from darkness to light. They are brought out of the domain of Satan into the kingdom of God through that word of the gospel that creates faith. And so this is, this is how we overcome the world. This is how we reign and rule is by the word of God. And even though for all the world to see, it looks like, you know, the church has failed. Like we are just those who are beaten up in prison, killed, so on and so forth. And, and I think we often get off into a lot of bad ideas when we try to think of, well, the church is successful when we measure that success by earthly standards, you know, how many people are in particular church buildings or what, you know, how much influence in the culture or whatever does the church have? And we say, oh, we're losing the, we're losing the battle. Oh, we're not, you know, we're not being successful or whatever. And, you know, that, that will fluctuate, you know, how much influence the church has in the culture. And so on will fluctuate from time to time. And even when it seems to have a, a lot of influence, like people often look back in the history of our own nation and they kind of look through rose-colored glasses and say, oh, those were great times. Look how influential the church was. So the church was still shot through with problems. And, you know, being influential in that way brings its own challenges, especially when you can belong to the church and it costs you nothing. It's really easy to just pretend, you know, so, so we don't want to gauge this with human understanding and we don't gauge success or failure based upon how many people we have in our church buildings or how much cultural influence we exert. You know, we look at Noah, for example, and he preached for how, you know, like, you know, years and years and years, right. And no one listened to him, you know? And so if we were to go with that metric, we would say about Noah, you are an utter failure. No, he wasn't. He was faithful in proclaiming the word that God gave him to proclaim. And that, you know, the success or failure of the church is defined by God. Faithfulness to his word. We fail if we abandon God's word and we begin to teach falsely and we bring in things that God's word does not say. Then we have failed. But if we are faithful to God's word and faithful in proclaiming that word, then there is no way that we failed. And it's not dependent on numbers there. And so we really want to resist that idea of we're kingdom builders, and we're building this empire that can be, you know visibly seen and measured, or we're looking for this great you know golden age to come of the church reigning over all the earth. There is one time in the future that is coming in which that kingdom will be plainly visible, and that is at the resurrection of the dead and the new heavens and the new earth, when we read about, for example, at the end of Revelation, here that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of God and of his Christ. Then we have the visible. Uh, tangible kingdom of God on earth, but not before then. And so we get really, we go off into a lot of misguided ways and a really a lot of uh, misunderstandings when we chase an earthly understanding of success in kingdom and so on, instead of what the scriptures uh, give to us that we apprehend it by faith, uh, not by sight.
3: So, yeah. And just like that, that picture of like building this kingdom. I don't know if you'd connect that with post-millennialism, but there's a number of different groups that would have that really optimistic view of, of, uh, everything getting better and better and better until the end when Jesus can just step in and sit on the throne that we got ready for him. Um, you know, but the opposite kind of, is this like really negative, uh, view kind of built on despair or hopelessness where it's kind of like, man, you know, I was hoping for something good, but now everything's hitting the fan, and it, it's getting worse. And I just want to get out of here. So, rapture us out of here, Lord. Get us out now. And uh, this this world's you know falling apart. But we don't need to have either one of those uh, perspectives in this. We can we can see that um, that I guess, despite what the world sees or what our earthly eyes see, that the church is is unmovable unshakable always growing always advancing forward Um, just like we we were looking for the lion of judah and we saw the lamb who looked like he had been slain and uh, but it's the same person and so you know he is even as the lamb who is slain he is the lion of judah and the church is also the one that the gates of hell cannot um, have success against right and And the church is going to keep moving forward until all the full number of God's people are brought in and it's advancing to the ends of the earth, to every tribe and nation. And we are victorious. Christ has already won the war and the the church continues forward uh, despite what it looks like. And also we don't need to fear an increase in tribulation or trial or struggle in any age or in any, in any place because the Lord's with us and we have hope for um, for where we stand and and where uh, where we will be eternally even beyond all of these trials that that the devil and the world throw at us <laughs>
2: yeah
1: that's a pretty good one I like that you missed out on an opportunity to throw up the wicked smart thing again when when Ben finished but I'll, I'll forgive you Mike mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll forgive I, you. I already
0: exited out of that oh, like, yeah me, man.
3: Sorry, you're gonna have to have like a hotkey for that just for every time ben shares something
0: I, I gotta get my gif and meme game on so oh. I'll, I'll be bringing that a little bit harder from now on i'm sorry guys sweet
1: Now, ben i i thought you had many significant things to say that were very good but uh one of them that kind of resonated with me a little bit is talking about the the success of the church right um, it's a conversation I've had um, here in Sydney a whole bunch of times. You know, how, how can we how can we measure our success as a church? I mean, obviously, we want more people in the doors. We would love more people to be here, but that's not how we measure the, our success as a church. We we measure it by our faithfulness to the Word of God, and we trust that God will do what He's promised to do through His Word. Right. So so we remain faithful in preaching and teaching, and and allow God to do the work of building his kingdom right continuing to to save souls all right any more thoughts on that song otherwise we'll jump into our next little section all right so we were zoomed in pretty tight on the throne and the lamb Uh, we just had the elders and the living creatures but at this point john kind of he kind of zooms out a little bit right uh starting there in verse 11 i looked and i heard around the throne Uh, and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Myriad is not a word I use very often. Is this a technical term? And if so, what number does it mean? And why didn't they translate it to that number?
2: Was it something like, was it 10,000? Yeah. A group of 10,000, whatever, <laughs> <laughs> whatever is in the group. So 10,000 of them would be uh, collectively referred to as a myriad. Yes, it is a Greek word. Maria but so 10,000 to a myriad. So, so the here our
1: answer is bunches
2: yeah so myriads and myriads would be thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands you know, kind of uh um you kind of have a parallelism here, I think, so to say myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands is just another way to say innumerable right so we're we're seeing here the entire host of heaven, basically you know countless countless hosts,
3: Yep. in fact, it's sort of like. Here, it, the sense of it is almost like 10,000s of innumerables <laughs> is is sort of how it is, uh, or the way that, that can, each of these can be used at different times. And so it is supposed to be a, just a countless number here, it's, but tons so we, and tons of them.
1: We were going to dumb it down to like Mike language. You'd be like, hey, have you ever seen like a bunch of something? Like imagine more of it. that's what it is (laughs) is that what you would say (laughs) that's probably what i'd say yeah (laughs) but these countless angels the hosts of heaven right they are also praising the lamb and there's some similar praise going on you know worthy is the lamb there was worthiness in that song that just came um worthy Uh, because he was slain that connects as well but then we get some some different stuff he's worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and and blessing Um, what's the significance of all of these things that the lamb is worthy to receive
3: well the things that obviously are i don't know maybe not obviously but There are things that really God is the only one who truly has them, right? Power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. They're they're all things that we might think we have or we might hope to have or try to have, but none of us really have them unless the Lord grants them to us. And anything that we have of those things, even in the smallest amount, is a gift from him. And... And so he's truly the source of all of these good things. Every good blessing, like it says in James, comes from him. So it's uh, finally giving credit where credit is due, maybe. And, and any of those things that
1: we've received, too, it's not like we've deserved them either, right? Right.
3: They're not wages, they're gifts.
1: They're gifts, good, good and gracious gifts from the hand of God stuff we don't actually deserve, but the lamb is worthy of receiving all of these things. Un- unlike us who still receive good things from God, the lamb is actually worthy to receive all of them.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to think about too. I don't know how often in our songs that we sing, you know, that, you know, we sing to God or in our prayers, how often do we spend, you know, time simply praising God for who he is and here's a song of praise and, you know, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might. Um, I think a lot of times we're pretty focused on, you know, what we want or what we want to ask of God and, and certainly there's nothing wrong with, you know, petitions to to God for what uh, what we need and and such but do we spend the time simply to you know to praise him for who he is and it's interesting too as we're thinking about that also that this kind of language has made it into the liturgy of the church as well and it's kind of interesting because we were chatting about this a little bit beforehand for before we recording one of the songs that uh the church sings in in her liturgy um is this is the feast of victory for our god right and and just listen to to the words that follow that so you know this is the feast of victory for our god hallelujah it says this worthy is christ the lamb who was slain whose blood set us free to be people of god power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and blessing and glory are his and he repeats this is the feast of victory for our God, hallelujah, sing with all the people of God and join in the hymn of all creation. Blessing and honor and glory and might be to God and the Lamb forever. Amen. This is the feast of victory for our God, for the Lamb who was slain has begun his reign. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now you hear in that straight out of Revelation. It's everything we just read, right? And so and so we sing this song of, of praise. Uh, in the church's liturgy as well, and so it's just uh, something that's one is kind of neat to see that that connection, the language there uh, here in in chapter five put put to song. But you know, just as we think about that, you know, do we do we spend time in our prayers and our songs simply singing the praises and the worth of our God and what He has done—that He has died for us sinners, that He has made us people of God, that he has begun his reign. He has conquered sin, death, and the devil. Worthy is this lamb. And so it's good for us to think about because I think a lot of times that ends up missing from our, from our songs and our prayers and our thinking about God and about Christ, you know? And this is, you know, what he has done for us is worth singing about every single day. You know, worthy is this lamb who was slain for us worthy is he to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing all the time. And so this song goes on in heaven all the time. We should join it here on earth more often than we do.
3: And when you're truly thankful, when you've truly experienced his goodness and and witnessed his uh, amazing nature then it's something you want to do that you rejoice in like you were saying earlier Ben that these new songs they they would come at times when people were rejoicing in God's salvation and redemption right they were mm-hmm. they were overcome with gratitude and and awe for who God is and what he did for them they would sing about his faithfulness, about his ability to create and, and have victory and, and what he had done in delivering them. And so, you know, also we think of how um, all the best songs in the history of the world that have been written by any single human being are written at the height of emotional experiences, aren't they? Um, we Case in point, about, yeah. my cousin Mike Power. I was he to wrote mention. the
1: best music right after a girl broke his heart. Like, I loved it. Yeah. He's married yeah. now, and I hope he never writes good music again. Wait yeah. a minute.
0: So, did you, just, did you just compare him to Taylor Swift?
3: Maybe. Uh, well, <laughs> I hope he's listening. Mike Power, <laughs> I love you. But you know actually that I mean the the people of God would write lamentations they'd write songs of weeping and crying out to the Lord in their sorrow and pain especially when they were being carried off into exile right and uh but then they would come home from exile when there would be an exodus and they would come home rejoicing and and they were so excited they couldn't stop singing about it and and so uh, we see that these songs represent then, again, God's salvation. And um, and so if you love, love really good music, you maybe know a little bit of what this is talking about, to have experienced something so powerfully that you can't help but sing about it. And um, what a wonderful thing that will be to realize even more than we do now what the Lord has done for us. I will also just add that with all these myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands of, of, um, creatures and the elders, um, and, and so on all worshiping the Lord, this, uh, the Lord Jesus, this really just is one more proof in scripture that Jesus is God because only God can receive this. And you just stole and- my thunder, bro. Oh man. I'm sorry. Oh, That's I'll back right. away. Okay. All right. All right. You just wait <laughs> for away. me to
1: wait for me to say the same thing. Why don't we pull <laughs> one step further back and get to our next couple of verses? Cause we're, we're continuing on this, this hymn of praise. Really. Um, we had just the, the elders and the living creatures at first zoomed in, we pull back and we've got like a whole bunch of angels and then like some more of them. Right. And then we pull back a third time in verse 13. Verse 13, I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, in the sea, and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Really similar themes, but there's something significant we should pull out of here. And Matt already said it because he stole my thunder. The one who sits on the throne, God, the father and the lamb, Jesus Christ, are praised Together in the same way, right? As Matt was saying, the only person that deserves this kind of praise is is God himself. So if you had questioned the divinity of Christ up to this point, Revelation doesn't allow you to do it because those praises are going to Jesus. And then he sat right there in verse 13. The Father and the Son praise together forever and ever.
3: Yeah, unless. And and oh, go ahead, man. Oh, yeah. Just quickly too, like lest we forget the Holy Spirit. You know, earlier in the verses when it talks about the the seven spirits of God, we remember that that's likely a, a reference to the Holy Spirit, and and that's you know the one who is even seemingly powering the Lamb. You know, the Spirit who is like his authority and his eyes to see everywhere. We see the uh, the Trinity also represented um, throughout the book of Revelation here as being together in all of this.
2: And as we hear um, in verse 13, you know, John heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, all that is in them, you know, saying, you know, this to him who sits on the throne to the lamb, be blessed in honor and glory and might forever and ever. And so that gives us a little bit of a, you know, a foretaste of uh, the consummation of the ages. And you say, when our Lord returns, um, there will be no question in anyone's mind, exactly who Jesus is. There will be no skeptic on the day of judgment. Now, There will be those that sadly will confess that truth to their everlasting damnation because they refuse to believe it. But there will be no skeptic as to who Christ is. Um, This is very similar uh, to what St. Paul writes in Philippians chapter two, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Um, So we get a little glimpse of, of the end where every creature heaven on earth, under the earth, in the sea, like there's no, no one's accepted. will confess the truth of who Christ is and what he has done. Um, and whether that again, whether that be a joyful confession for the people of God, or whether that be a confession to one's own damnation uh, on the final day there. And that fits very well um, too, with, you know, what we see in James and what we see in the gospels that the devil and the demons, they have, there's no confusion on their part. They know exactly who Jesus is. They're not skeptics in that in that way. They know exactly who he is. They just hate him <laughs> and oppose him. But there's no doubt. They know exactly what's going on. Um, it's really only us <laughs> in this age as human beings that are so foolish as to deny the truth of who Christ is and what he has done. And we do so to our own Harm. But one day that confession will come forth from every creature in all places.
1: All right, guys, it's about time to land the plane. Last verse, verse 14. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. When I was a kid, I was pretty convinced that the word amen meant goodbye. Can one of you Greek scholars give me a better translation? Or confirm that as a child I was a genius?
2: Well, oh man is a Hebrew word.
0: Oh. Well, there goes the genius <laughs> trait right there. Sorry, Mike.
2: <laughs> it just gets it gets transliterated into just comes right over into Greek and it comes <laughs> right over into English in that in that way. Um It's a Hebrew word, comes from the word aman, which means faithful and true. So when we say amen, uh, we are saying, yes, this is true. Um, So, you know, we hear that often in the in Luther's small catechism. He will say these words, you know, this is most certainly true uh, in confessing the truth of, you know, of God and his word. That's what we are saying. So, you know, to these praises of Christ and all that he has done, we say this is most certainly true. And that's a confession of faith. You know, we are saying, yes, I believe this. Yes, this is true.
3: Yeah. So there's no reference here to men or women in this <laughs> word? No. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a
1: good distinction to have in I today's world. <laughs> Rough.
3: <laughs> All right.
1: <laughs> my, my favorite translation of Amen is the King James. I love the verily.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Because yeah, that means very very a lot very. to me.
3: Because they <laughs> use it a lot. Truly, <laughs> <laughs> Truly yep.
1: Verily, mm-hmm. verily. All right, fellas, any closing thoughts? Well, then the right Reverend Matthew W. Nelson, would you please call right, us a word of prayer?
3: Yep. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful picture of of your throne and the lamb and and this worship time. And uh, we recognize that you truly are the one who is worthy of of all glory and honor and blessing. You are the source of all good things. Every good thing that the world has is from you all the all the good music, the good food the the beautiful sunrises and sunsets, the trees and and the sunshine lord all all of these things are from you. You are the source. And so we praise you. No one else, nothing else deserves any credit but you. And we think especially of, of the thing that maybe uh, could make us sing the most and, and should make us the most grateful, and that's your redemption that you won through the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, uh, who shed his blood for the world, for people of every tribe and tongue and nation. And as we think, too, about this picture, we recognize that that everyone is going to have to admit that this is true, that you are the one who is worthy, and you are the one who has provided salvation. And it uh, is scary and sad to think about those who will have to say that, even though they rejected you. And so I pray, Lord, that today and every day, until you come again, Lord, we would we would not be people who reject you or deny who you really are and what you've done for us. uh, Because on that day, we don't want to have to be saying this out of fear or, or in a way that even shows our own condemnation. Uh, But uh, Lord, that we could be rejoicing in these truths of, of your goodness, your greatness and your great salvation for us that we might be, rejoicing in that day and praising you with, with gratitude and, uh, and looking forward to uh, countless days, uh, eternal days or eternal ages with you rejoicing in your good gifts uh, that are revealed all the more fully. And so, uh, God, prepare our hearts uh, to continue forward, um, trusting in you, and, and uh, may we look forward to that day. In Jesus' great and glorious name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, Makes you made
0: it all the way to the end.
3: How do you steal
0: a
2: coat? You jacket. See ya. <laughs>